Well, tonight we are going to be in Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 35. Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 35. And uh, as I just noted in prayer, uh, this will be closing out our study of the Judge Gideon. There's a lot said about Gideon, and so uh, other than Samson, he's the one that uh, the author of Judges spends the most time on. And so we are going to consider um, the end of Gideon's uh, time as a judge uh, in Israel. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earring from his spoil. Uh, for, uh, the, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the, the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it uh, and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years on the day of Gideon. In the days of Gideon, Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And uh, his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizurites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the, after the Baals and, the Balber, and made Baalberith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies of every side. And they did, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So I was excited this year because um, one of my favorite uh, football players for the Miami Dolphins, Zach Thomas, uh, uh, was a wonderful middle linebacker, uh, and during the, especially during the 90s and early 2000s. And, uh, and he uh, just made his entrance into the NFL Football Hall of Fame. And so uh, and he joins... 369 other players uh, in, in the Hall of Fame, as, which is the greatest honor that you can receive for playing the game. And I was reminded of this as we studied Gideon, because we have our own Hall of Fame, right, in the book of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith. What's interesting is hall, in, in, in the Hall of Faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, it, there's several groups of people named, but there's only 13 people that are named that are actually by, actually have their names written down. I mean, if you think about how selective scripture is and the amount of history it covers and all the people that it mentions and doesn't mention, and then of all those, 
13 names make it into the examples of faith chapter, the Hall of Fame. And Gideon is one of those names. And so, it, it, and, and we see, have we seen why that is? Uh, it, it, we, you know, Gideon has a, what he accomplished with just 300 men against this swarming army of, of three combined peoples. His deeds of faith serve as an example for the church of God to persevere, to, to run our course with eyes of faith, uh, rather than looking it around at what we are. And we, we see a meager band, uh, but, but what in reality God can do so much through so little. And so Gideon gives us a positive and wonderful example of all that God can and will do simply by faith in accordance with his command. But Gideon's life also serves as a warning. And the warning here, especially with Gideon, is that even if God does something grand through us, it doesn't mean everything else is easy. We're not on easy street after that. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be successful. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be faithful. It doesn't mean that God will always be pleased with us no matter what we do. The scriptures, thankfully, do not hold back on the faults of our heroes. Solomon, for all his wisdom, ended his race like a fool. And if the wisest man in the world does that, well, then what hope do we have? If a man like Gideon, who was used by God so powerfully, fell as recorded in this chapter, what are we to do? Well, tonight we're going to consider how we might finish our course, learning from Gideon, how we might finish our course well. And so we're going to focus on two things to avoid and then one principle to live by. And that is we need to avoid false humility, avoid false piety, and finally, we must always humble ourselves before the Lord. So first we see, we learn from Gideon that we need to avoid false humility and because we need to be distrustful of ourselves and our own hearts because even with Gideon not everything is as it seems a significant portion of Israel not literally all of Israel but a significant section of Israel come to Gideon and they declare that they want him to be their king they don't use the word king uh, but they invite him and his descendants to rule over them and I'm not sure what else you would call it Right. Uh, and so Gideon responds by very rightly saying that, you know, he's not going to rule over them. They already have a king. The Lord will be your king. And you're like, OK, well, good job, Gideon. Very good. That's the right response, the right answer. And there's nothing wrong with Gideon's response and what he says. But there's a lot wrong with everything he does after he says it. And so because everything he does undermines this thing that he just said. Because it is true that the Lord is the king of Israel, and while as judge, Gideon may deliver them and, and, and during his time may minister justice, he is not the king of Israel. He has been called by God uh, to be a judge, not the king. But then he makes a request. He says, okay, now I'm not going to be king, but I'm going to ask just one thing of you. All right? He says, I want you to willingly give me the earrings from your spoil, from the war. Now this is referring to the, uh, the earrings that were stripped from the Midianite dead. But the, script, the, the scripture actually refers to them as Ishmaelites. 
which can be a little confusing. Um, and so, because uh, that's not talking about the Israelites. Israelites are Israelites, not Ishmaelites. But it's referring to the dead Midianites as Ishmaelites. And so, um, and so there's two possibilities here um, about why it does this here. Uh, first is that um, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites somehow have become intertwined as people groups. Um, the other option is that um, Ishmaelites have kind of become a, kind of like a, a kind of like a representative term for nomadic peoples. Um, and so uh, either option would explain why uh, the, the author does that there. But the people gladly assent to the request, and Gideon makes off with an estimated 3,400 earrings, according to scholars, uh, which weighs, you know, they said about, what, 1,700 shekels. And I know what you're asking. Is that the lighter shekel or the heavy shekel measurement? Yeah. And we don't know. So it's somewhere between 40 and 70 pounds of gold, which is pretty good, right? Add to that the crescent ornaments that were highly valuable and signified royalty, the pendants, the finest garments that money could buy that literally came off the dead bodies of defeated kings, and Gideon makes off with quite the treasury. And then we find out that Gideon also has 70 sons with a harem of wives, and we're told that he had a particular son uh, with, with a concubine, and he named him Abimelech. And it is a bit strange for a guy who says he doesn't want to be king to gather to himself a treasury, a harem, and then to name one of his sons Abimelech. Well, why is that odd? Because Abimelech means my father is the king. Ab is father, Abi is my father, and Melech is king. My father is the king. And so we're going to get into the ephod thing in a minute. But essentially what Gideon was doing here is setting himself up and his family up as this kind of alternative royal priesthood that would rival the Levites. He didn't want to be king, he says. But his action shows he wanted to live like a king. He wanted to be respected like a king. He didn't want to be king, but he'll be your priest and he'll tell you, for a reasonable sum, what God wants you to do. Okay. And so we need to remember that actions always speak louder than words. Unfortunately, Gideon seems to be buying wholesale into his own legend. And although his success is clearly from the Lord, and remember God orchestrated, organized this whole thing, so it would be absolutely clear, there'd be no shadow of a doubt that it was he who did it. And Gideon pays lip service to that effect, but his actions reveal his heart. And we need to beware embracing ourselves, embracing a false humility toward God, that by our words we honor him, we give him lip service, but our home life, our work life tell a far different story. We must be cautious not to let the great victories that God has won for us to become excuses for us to indulge in the desires of the flesh. There is a reason to say that we must be careful not only in the midst of hard afflictions to, against this type of temptation, but in Gideon's case, to be careful on the heels of success. That's where a lot of times people do, don't get it. There's, a, there's an actor who, a really good actor, but he, he was known for being like over 300 pounds. He was really tall and he was just super overweight. Um, well, then he, he lost a ton of weight. He lost like 200 pounds. 
And so, um, and he's still acting and he's still, but he's like worked out and he's got all these muscles, stuff like that. And he also has like a lot of skin hang, but, um, but he's, you know, really just kind of changed his, his life, uh, his physical life. And, um, but one of the things he's talked about was, you know, dealing with a temptation to eat because he, he's like, I can eat like, all right, you don't get to 300 plus pounds without eating. <laughs> and so he says, uh, he says, I, I can eat. And so he said, um, uh, and he said, uh, uh, but he said, he said, but he said it's not just when he's sad and depressed that he has to watch out for eating. He said actually he had to realize when he was really happy, <laughs> because he would, it would it, it would come it would come for that desire that he would, it would hit him and he would be like okay and he would indulge and break his diet. <laughs> it was just kind of like that idea. It's the same thing with temptation. Or it doesn't just come for us when we're weak and having a bad day and a bad time. Sometimes it comes on the heels of a great success, a great victory, and catches us by it even catches more by surprise then because we think we're strong. We think we're invincible. We're not even thinking about the enemy coming for us. And that's why the enemy comes for us right then. And so Gideon presses us to consider the ways in which our public and private lives are not in sync. And, and, and that is very easy to do in our world today, to have one persona outside and then, the, then our real persona on the inside. So we need, and, so, uh, and, and so we need to avoid a false humility that pretends to be humble but it's actually deeply prideful. And we need to remember that our actions will speak louder than our words in the end. And secondly, we need to avoid a, having a false piety. And, uh, and there's an important principle here, uh, which is that uh, even, even the best of intentions are not a substitute for obedience. Good intentions are not a substitute for obedience. Gideon takes some of the gold and he fashions an ephod out of it. An ephod is essentially a sleeveless tunic uh, with a gold breastplate on it, and so that's where the gold would come into play. But it was a fine linen garment with a with a with a uh, with, with attached to it a gold breastplate, and uh, and and so it and so the, actually the Aaron the high uh, you know Aaron the high priest wore the first one, and so the high priest of Israel would wear this uh, in or and inside and somehow attached to it. Uh, was like a pouch or something. It had what was called the umen and the thumen, and and it was used to kind of determine decisions. And we don't know what they were. Some people say it was like dice or drawn straws or something like that. We just we honestly don't know. Um, but that's what Gideon makes. He fashions for himself an ephod, uh, and, uh, and 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 so. The, but the thing is, is that there's already an ephod in existence. It's with the Ark of the Covenant, which is in Shiloh. Like it's already there. So if you want to go seek the Lord and, and, and get his guidance, then you go to Shiloh. You go to, the Ark of the, you go to the Ark of the Covenant. You go see the Levites over at the tabernacle. But Gideon decides, for whatever reason, we're not told, that he is going to set up himself as an alternate priesthood, as a new high priest. And, I mean, after all, had not God come to Gideon? Had he not spoken to Gideon through an angel? Had, he, had Gideon not tested God with the fleece and survived? Had Gideon not just accomplished a great defeat of the enemy with the Lord's help with only 300 men? Is Gideon not blessed by God? Well, certainly God would answer Gideon on your behalf, once again, for a reasonable fee. Okay? It, 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 it ain't free. I mean, you know, they gotta, these priests got to eat, right? 
Now, even Gideon, e- even if he did have noble intentions, maybe he wasn't trying to be a, a, a maybe he literally just self-deceived. And he just thinks, yes, of course. And he's just, uh, um, even if he has the best intentions here, uh, at least one author noted that what is described here is very reminiscent of what Aaron did with the golden calf. He took the gold and he fashioned a new object. And, uh, and, and remember, this is not, this is not for an, an alternate God. This is an ephod that is supposed to be used to inquire of the Lord, the God of Israel. And, and, and we know, and, and, uh, and so, but even if someone says, well, I don't know, I'm not sure if I can make that full connection. The point's still the same. God cares about how he is worshipped, and good intentions do not cut it. They do not change how God feels about how he wants to be worshipped. And we know this because of what the author says in verse 27. That all Israel, and it used very strong language. I don't know if you noticed it. He said, all Israel whored after it, prostituted themselves after it there, and it ensnared Gideon and his family. You're bringing prostitution and whoring. You're, you're using strong language to describe something. And, 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 and this is this alternate means through which God's people would worship the Lord, the author says, was actually a means of spiritual adultery, covenant unfaithfulness, that people could genuinely go to seek out the Lord and commit spiritual adultery because they weren't going through the priesthood that God had established. They weren't worshiping God in accordance with his command. And the fruit of this is seen in verse 33, where the people not only forget about Gideon, but they forget about the Lord again, and they and they install Baal Barit, which means means the Baal of the covenant, as their god. And so what, what we're reminded that true piety does indeed come from the heart, but always according to the word of God. True worship does not conflict with God's commands. There are many religious leaders, even pastors of churches, who have decided that they seem to know better than the scriptures do. There are many well-meaning Christians who believe that as long as they are sincere in their intentions, that God doesn't really care what they do or doesn't really mind what they do. And they're usually selectively informed by verses in the the Bible about God's love, but they either intentionally or ignorantly do not account for the many, many verses where God makes it clear that he cares about our obedience to his word, especially when it comes to worshiping him. It's like, well, you know, what if I want to worship God, but I'm just going to add a couple other gods in there? You know, that's, and it's like, well, no, somebody, somebody with the loosest form of Christian worship would say, well, no, you can't do that. Why? Why not? I'm sincere. At least one of the gods I'm getting right. Why not? Isn't God forgiving? Isn't he kind? They're like, well, no, because there's only one God and God says so in his word. Like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) He says so in his word. What else does God say in his word? And so so we as, as Reformed Presbyterians, we believe in something called the regulative principle, which means simply that all of our life is regulated by the word of God. And that applies to worship. Now, uh, there's two large views that came came of this. There's the Martin Luther view that Martin Luther said, well, basically, unless unless God in his word says you can't do it, then it's, you know, within reason, it's pretty much anything's fair game. Within reason. 
And then Calvin, though, and other reformers came along and they said, no, 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 no. It's not just kind of like open to interpretation within reason. No, it's, it's uh, we actually are bound to only do that which God has prescribed for worship. Now, we don't, now, uh, we also say, look, we're not saying that you can only have like a, a harp and a lyre. Like, <laughs> that's not what, that's not what it means. It means in principle, what does God demand and require for worship that can be done in a variety of different contexts? Uh, and so it doesn't mean you can have a piano or you can have a guitar, you can have different instruments or no instruments at all. Um, but, uh, but we clearly see in the scriptures a prescription in Christian worship for reading the scriptures, for praying the scriptures, singing the scriptures, as well as uh, giving in worship and, and, and performing the sacraments. And look, there is the, the possibility, and I've seen it done, where, where people will use the regulative principle in order just to kind of be like, well, we can only use an organ that's just like the Apostle Paul said, you know, kind of like that's the kind of that's the kind of confidence they have, you know, about it. And you're like, OK, not not quite right. Not quite there. But the regular principle of worship is also an effective safeguard for worship. And if you're like me, you've been to some worship services where you're like they could use a little regular principle here. <laughs> it's getting a little wild, getting a little crazy. We could actually do some good regulating. All right. And so uh, and it's but the mistake here is to say there's is to make it make a false choice to say that worship is either coldly done according to God's commands or it is only done according to our affections and what makes us feel good. Right. It's the, you know, like you have to choose between the word and the heart. It's like, no, 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 that's not how that works. That's a false choice. It's a false dichotomy. Uh, uh, true worship comes from the heart in obedience to the word of God, guided, constrained, directed by the word of God, because the word of God directs the heart to God. Because my heart's going all over the place, even when I come into worship. And so I need my heart directed by the word of God, or else I'm going to take it all over the place. And you don't want the direction of this worship service to be left up to me, Okay. Because, like I said, we're going to go all over the place, all right? We're going to go wherever Eric's going, and you don't want to go that way. We need to, and so the scripture gives us direction and gives us guardrails, gives us a foundation. And so, and, and because, and, and look, and we also have to admit in all of this that our worship is always faulty. It's always uh, riddled with errors and insincerity. We are often distracted, selfish worldly uh, you know but thankfully god doesn't love us because we figured out how to worship right we figured it out everybody are we, isn't that great we figured it out everybody else got it wrong and god loves us because of it now his mercy extends to us even for our worship and we need it you know that's one of the reasons we begin our worship services with an invocation because we need the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us worship God like he deserves. We start with an invocation because we can't worship God without God's help. Gideon reminds us that we must be careful not to give into a false piety that says God accepts whatever we do in his name 
even if it violates his word. And so we know what not to do. Uh, we are, but what are we to do then? We want to. We need to avoid uh, false humility. We need to avoid false piety. Uh, but what are we supposed to do? And there's many things we could go here, many directions we could go. But one central one, one principle that bears uh, fruit and 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 leads to so many other good, even sub principles and and things that bear so much fruit in our life is to always. Humble ourselves before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. And that, what that means is that we need to seek the Lord above all else. Human leaders like Gideon will not give us the rest that we seek. The deliverance that they do bring is only flawed and temporary. Because even the best leaders die. Even the best leaders make errors and mistakes. And God in his kindness allows Gideon to live many years and to die according to the biblical formula for blessing. He died at a good old age, as we like to say. And we're told in verse 28 that the land had rest for 40 years all the way through the life and, and to the death of Gideon. Now, this certainly follows the pattern that's been established since the beginning of the book of Judges. As uh, one author pointed out, that, the, that the, this is the last time, though, that in these cycles, we, we, that the land has rest. From now on out, there will be oppression. There will be, there will be sinful rebellion. There will be oppression. There will be crying out. There will be deliverance. But there will be no rest anymore for Israel. Well, why is that? Because persistent rebellion and apostasy against God will ultimately uh, lead to the removal of God's gifts and blessings. Delroth Davis in his commentary writes that God's mercy is deep, but it is not easygoing. His mercy is tender, but it will not be trampled. Even, in the, even Paul, in the, in the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans warns against trampling upon his mercy and his kindness, because the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Even as God's people today, if we continually, intentionally rebel against him, and the Westminster Confession says this as well, that God may well remove the sense of his presence in our lives to make us long for him and realize how awful our sin is. Pain is often the megaphone that uh, that. God uses to get our attention. And God uses it to break the trance-like gaze that we have upon our sinful idols and to get us to lift our eyes to Christ. But wherever we are in our life, humility is always a good thing. Today is always the day to humble yourself before the Lord. If we're doing well and things are going great, then humility will prevent us from forgetting the Lord and becoming arrogant. If, we are, if things are really hard and we're suffering, then humility reminds us that we are in God's hand and he will lift us up in due time. C.S. Lewis wrote that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but simply think, thinking about yourself less. But even more, humility is reminding ourselves who we are 
reminding ourselves of the reality of the corruption that is in the world, even the remaining corruption that we are making war against in our own body. Humility reminds us where our true hope is, which is not in us or in this created world. And so humility reminds us essentially of who we are and who God is. And at the end of the day, if we are going to humble ourselves before the Lord, then that means that we must look to Christ. Gideon may be in the hall of faith, but according to Hebrews 12, Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he begins our redemption and he completes our redemption. Christ is the all, further the, the deliverer that we actually need. He is the greater Gideon in every way. And that's not simply just a, you know, time to dunk on Gideon here. But to remind us that Gideon, is, in his success and failure, points us to the greater deliverer. Each one of these judges points to the greater one to come. And it's because we need a deliverer whose faith never wavered or failed. We need a deliverer who is incorruptible, who cannot be swayed by the world, who is tempted by the devil himself, yet does not give in. A deliverer who can bring us deliverance from all oppression, including sin and death itself. We don't need a deliverer who wants to, you know, be a pseudo-pretend king. We need a deliverer who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we can learn from Gideon here about how to finish well. How to, and, and, and we learn from Gideon here. Flee from the false humility. Flee from a false piety. And to humble ourselves before the Lord. But above all, Gideon teaches us to look for the greater deliverer in Jesus Christ. Who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Because with our eyes set on him, we can run the race set before us. Casting off our sin and everything that weighs us down by faith and grace in Christ. Then we will finish well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is our true deliverer. And that with our eyes set upon him, we can strengthen our hands and strengthen our feet and strengthen our body. That we can encourage one another as we continue to run the race of this life. Lord, we pray that you would help us to finish our course well. May we give you thanks for every great and wonderful victory that you have given to us in this life. But Lord, may we also be on guard against pride, against worldliness that would incite us to adopt a false humility, a false worship, a false piety. And Lord, may we throughout our life humble ourselves before you. Lord, and if we do not, we would rather you humble us in, in the ways that you deem necessary than to continue in our sin. And so, Lord, we pray that we would set our hearts and minds upon your blessed Son tonight. That, and, Lord, that we would submit ourselves to you, all our victories and all our sorrows, and that we would indeed continue the race. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand now.